Welcome back. Bill Kelly Show, 900 CHML. Glad you're with us today. As uh, we begin part two of our five-part series, The Opioid Crisis here in Hamilton, uh, this week on the program we'll uh, be taking a look at the growing opioid crisis in our country and in particular what's been going on here in our community. What exactly is the situation in Hamilton right now? What's the city doing to combat that drug problem right here? What services are available? Well, the uh, panel that we have assembled today are going to address all of those issues and more. Uh, we're so pleased to welcome to our studio this morning to uh, give you part two, uh, Dr. Jessica Hopkins, Chief Medical Officer for the City of Hamilton. It's finally uh, great to have you face-to-face here. I know we've talked on the phone before, but thanks for g- coming in. You're a busy lady, but I appreciate you coming in today. Good morning. Thanks Good for having me. Good to have you with me. us. Claire Freeman, a dear friend of ours, of course, uh, with the Bob Kemp Hospice. Good to see you again, Claire. Good to see you. And another dear friend, Debbie Bang, Manager of uh, Womankind, Womankind, rather, Addiction Services, the Men's Addiction Services, as well, uh, at uh, St. Joseph's Healthcare in Hamilton, a number of other variations of the great work that you're doing too. Thank you. Great to see you again, Deb. Thanks for having me. Let me let me start off. By, I want to, if I could, we did this a little bit yesterday when we we did part one of this panel. But I think some of the feedback I got uh, yesterday from uh, those who listened to the program was was some disbelief and some questions about exactly uh, why this this is such an addictive substance and why it seems to be happening. And 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 doctor, when when I look at for instance, the effects of, of, of fentanyl, and nausea, vomiting, constipation, altered heart rate, slow breathing, confusion, hallucinations, weakness, sweating. Why are people attracted to this? Yeah, I, I think that, you know, there are a number of reasons that this has happened. First of all, um, this is a legitimate medication. So it's actually very important in things like anesthesia as well as for people post-surgery. We don't want people to be suffering with pain. So there is absolutely a role for opioids. The challenge is that for some people, um, and a lot of times what happens is they've started using opioids for legitimate reasons, like for pain, they've hurt their back or something like that, their body actually becomes addicted to them so that when they try to come off them, they can start to suffer uh, from side effects, so withdrawal. So they're going to feel very, very uncomfortable when that happens. So they start looking to get more in order to just stop those withdrawal effects. And so unfortunately for a lot of people, this actually starts with legitimate reasons um, and unfortunately turns into addiction. Yeah, we were, I mentioned the story yesterday to our panel. Obviously, I had two knee replacements, so I'm, I'm familiar with these. But all the stuff I just mentioned here, you know, nausea, vomiting, constipation, uh, paranoia, claustrophobia, that was me. I, after about three days, I said, get me off this stuff. I can't do this anymore. Uh, it just it was driving me crazy. But at what point, though, doctor? I mean, I, I, I made that conscious decision, and I guess that, you know individuals are going to react differently to medications like this. But at what point do you, does your body start to say, no, 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 I need that now? Yeah, I mean, it's going to be very different for every person. So, you know, addiction is really complex. There is a biological basis to it. So what the body actually needs and is looking for, and that set point is going to be different for each of us. There's also a mental or psychological aspect to it as well. And so, you know, it's actually can be somewhat challenging to sometimes predict who's going to become addicted, although there are certainly questions that healthcare providers should be asking people to try and determine whether or not they're going to be at increased risk for addiction. So, you know, you ask about things like their family histories or family history of addiction. You ask about things like addiction to other substances, whether it be things like alcohol or even tobacco. And those can sometimes give us some of the hints that maybe we should be a little bit more cautious with that person with our prescribing and monitoring them really carefully so that we lower their risk of addiction if they're using it for a legitimate reason. We've used this word about a dozen times already in the conversation, Deb, but addiction itself, and it's a word that we use a lot 
in our everyday language in the lexicon, you know, oh, I'm addicted to chocolate. I'm addicted, uh, and, and and almost in an offhanded way, uh, but and, and and maybe not fully understanding what an addiction really is. And and you've seen with the work that you and your staff do, uh, what an addiction actually can do to somebody. It's not just a craving. It's it's something deeper than that, isn't it? Yeah, and, and I think the other the other factor with opioids as well is there is um, an ability of opioids to help with pain both physically and mental pain. Mm -hmm. So if I've got a background of trauma, I've had a difficult upbringing, I have um, situations that have been really uncomfortable for me that are really hard to put away, I I am much more susceptible to using substances to try to put those in the background, to forget about them, to not be thinking about them. Addiction really is about that, that line that gets crossed where nothing is going to get in my way to prevent me from getting that substance. So the consequences of lost family, lost income, lost uh, job, lost close acquaintances, uh, the risks that people are taking currently with opiates and not knowing exactly what it is they're putting into their body and how much of, of one's substance is there and whether or not there's a risk of dying as a result, that's less important. I need that right now and I will do whatever it is I need. Still, many people still have a point at which I won't cross this line, but there's numbers of lines that they are crossing to get that substance. But is there a point, though, Claire, when they they say, I'm not going to cross that line, but when they get to that line, I got to cross it? Um, I would think so. I mean, in in other work that I've certainly done with folks who have addiction, they, um, you know, some people say it's a bottom line that they hit and then they want to seek for help and and you want to make sure help is available for people right away. Um, But uh, I want to reiterate what Debbie Bang is saying is, is it's the issue that these medications really do help with pain and um, relieve that pain. So again, if, if folks are having deep trauma, all kinds of other things that are going on in their life, then this is actually quite an effective way to, to get rid of that. Equally so at Bob Kemp, we're dealing with palliative patients. Exactly. And we absolutely know that uh, this is a very important uh, drug. So we use a lot of opiates, fentanyl, like all kinds, um, to really help control and give people a really good death. So, you know, it's 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 an interesting phenomena that, you know, we're dealing with this opiate crisis, but, you know, we had a number of years ago the Oxycontin issue, and everybody thought that was going to be solved, and then we got rid of Oxycontins, and now we've got fentanyl, and we're talking about this crisis. I think it's, it is a complex issue, addiction, and um, legitimate, why we need to have this for pain and symptom, but also how do we control and monitor so that uh, we can uh, keep people from developing addictions, but not leave uh, large amounts of uh, opiates in prescription um, in people's homes where people can get access to them. So it's, it's, it's a very complicated issue. I think that, Go sorry, ahead, I was just going to say, I think that's a really key point that, that Claire hit on, that this is um, a, a complex issue and it's not just about fentanyl today and it's not just about Oxycontin was previously. We need that, to that's th- the one that makes the headlines. I- exactly. But, the- but we need to think about this as drugs in general. I mean, right now, opioids are are a big concern. But if we had been having this conversation back in the 1980s, we might have been talking about cocaine instead. So there are going to be different drugs that come into the market and become popular sometimes because of availability and other reasons. And so when we're actually thinking about how we're going to address this, we need to think about broadly 
what do we do to set Hamilton up for success for any drug that might come into the market? And then what do we do for the specific drugs right now being opioids that are the major issue? And the, the, the paradox here, I guess, really, Debbie, is, the, is, is what you all three have just touched on here is we're talking about a legal substance and, and a, a substance that actually is, is very effective in dealing with physical and, and mental concerns in, in many, many people and, done, and used properly is, is, is a great tool. Uh, but it's being abused. It's not as if you can say, well, okay, we've got to stop this fentanyl thing. Uh, we've got to stop these opioids. No, we can't stop those opioids. I mean, there's, there's, there's a necessity here. But at the same time, you have to balance that against the fact that there are people that are abusing this. I, I mean, there is an illegal element to it as well. We talked about yesterday with the police services uh, when uh, Dan Kinsella was in here with us. But, but we have to couch what we're saying here right now because people that are using these and using these effectively to try to deal with their issues right now are thinking, they say, wait, am I doing something wrong? Well, they're not really if, if, if it's being done in a proper manner. Yeah, and, and that's, that's the difference is, is thinking about um, what is it I need this for? How long should I be expecting to need to take this medication for? I'm post-off arm surgery. I'm post-off uh, knee replacement. So what's what's the time frame? And what am I going to do to help me manage that pain? Because pain is perceived. Mm-hmm. And not all pain needs to be dealt with a pain medication. Mm-hmm. And in fact, the side effect of a pain medication is that I'm going to be sleepy or I'm going to be dopey or I'm not going to be as available. So I'm not living my life during that period of time. And um, you know, is everybody willing to have a knee replacement and then opt out of life for six weeks or, or three weeks? You, you still want to live life. So how do I learn how to manage that pain in different ways? And one of the beautiful things that is starting to happen in uh, Ontario is there's been some new funds released for pain clinics. Because one of the things we did not do well uh, in healthcare, and I happen to be a nurse, so I can speak from that perspective, is we haven't helped people to manage pain in other ways besides taking a medication. We start children very early. We have extractions done, and we, we give people Tylenol 3s for, you know, having a tooth out. And and is that really all what what is needed? And so thinking about how we help people to do visualization, or we refer to it as changing the channel, uh, you know, what, what is it I can do that gives me some pleasure so I make my brain think that everything is okay and it doesn't have to be a, an opioid or a pain medication that I'm using? Mm-hmm. It, was, it was too easy, I guess, maybe in bygone days to simply write a script and say, here, mm-hmm. take some of these and, and that'll make this thing go away. Uh, and, and, and that has to be part of the discussion, too. But how do you find, Claire, that balance uh, with end-of-life care, for instance, at Bob, uh, Dr. Bob Kemp Hospice, or even, I guess, in primary care, too, post-surgery and things of this nature, uh, to 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 make sure that their their needs are looked after, pain management is a big part of this. But at the same time, you don't want to go off that cliff either. Absolutely. Well, um, you know, palliative care is a, a specialty, and uh, pain and symptom management is very much front and center of what we do. And we're constantly monitoring. And in palliative care, you're trying to find that balance that Debbie's talking about is not over-medicating people because you want them to be able to say goodbye to their family sure. member and be as, as conscious as possible, but you don't want them to be suffering. And uh, so it is a balance. And, you know, you, you have to try different medications because, as we were talking about, people re- will respond differently to different medications. So, you know, somebody will be on a, on a fentanyl, but that's not working, so we'll switch to a different opiate. Um, And then sometimes we will get some folks who are in the community um, or from the hospital who are over-medicated. So, you know, pain and symptom, again, it is absolutely both a physical thing, but a existential um, experience as well. And I don't think, as Debbie has pointed out, we've done a really good job of the existential 
pain. Um, and I think that that's really what you're dealing with on the street, um, particularly, or people who are giving up everything um, for the drug. Um, so it, it, is a, it is an interesting balance that we have to make um, for sure. When somebody knocks on your door, I'm, I'm doing that metaphorically, mm-hmm. uh, and says, I got a problem here, uh, what are you dealing with? What, are, what state of mind are they in? What are they like right now? And, and uh, are they people that are saying, I, I'm ready to change? Or are there people that are just saying, I don't know what to do next? So people come to the door for a whole bunch of reasons. I'm sure. Sometimes it's to get away from a nagging person who is making life difficult in their perspective. So it could be child welfare, it could be a partner, it could be a parent, it could be a, a sibling. And uh, so they're so they're coming in to sort of get them off their back. Some people are coming in because they, they really would like to make a change and are not confident to do that and feel if they got some help, they might be able to do that. Some people need a safe place to withdraw because it's not safe out on the street or where they're living. Uh, they're because worried. temptation's still there? Well, also their physical safety. So okay. somebody may harm them or take what they have. Um, because when people are in withdrawal, they're, they're not always in right mind. They're not fully available and awake. Someone who is on opiates could be quite deeply asleep at, at part of that and therefore is not aware of somebody you know, being in their space. Uh, there's, there's risks for females related to sexual assault and those kinds of things, uh, physical assault, t- taking some of their belongings. So when they arrive, they come for a variety of reasons. Our work is to help people to define what those reasons are and where they want to go from here. And when we line up stage of change, so whether I want to change or don't want to change, or if I do want to change but I'm really worried I might not make it, that's what our work is, is to help them to sort that out and then to put programming in place that gets them where they want to go. No matter how long it takes. This is not a no five-minute questionnaire. It ta- no, it's not. <laughs> yeah, you've answered these ten questions. Now I've made a determination what you're all about. You can't exactly. do that. Exactly. We'll have you fixed just like that. Yeah. <laughs> but but uh, do they have that expectation in some cases? Oh, for sure they do. And uh, family probably even more so. Uh, the challenge for family, of course, is they're living this day to day. Sure. And there's inconsistencies. And if I actively need substances, I'm not always telling the truth about what's going on in life or where I got that money or what it is I'm doing. You raised an interesting point, Debbie, about family and the influence that they can have on a situation like that. Do you, do you get that, Claire, when, you, when you're doing palliative care? People are questioning, what are you giving? What, what's, what's the effect it's having? I, 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 I don't like what it's doing to my loved one. Uh, absolutely. And I think for families, uh, in particular, caregivers are, are burdened with trying to understand opiates because there's so many involved, uh, oftentimes in palliative care, when there's a disease such as cancer involved and the medication is changing all the time and you've got these folks coming into your home or saying, well, give this if there's a breakthrough in pain. Well, they don't even know what pain threshold is, and and sometimes they over-medicate. I just heard somebody who came to our hospice who was saying she was so thankful to come to the hospice because she was managing her um, husband out in the community, and at one point, she actually thought she OD'd him because like, mm-hmm. he wasn't moving. And she she said, like, you know, uh, she was walking around for a couple hours saying, oh, my God, I, I think I, I overdosed my husband. And she felt incredible guilt. But when she came into the hospice, you know, you have your, your specialists there who are monitoring, who know how to monitor, will be able to see symptoms of delirium or, or things that sort of go on that are, are negative and, and really understand it. And and caregivers um, and family, like, they see the destruction, first of all, for us. They see their Part, their family member 
about to pass, but when folks are active in addiction and an end of life isn't a part of them, they see their family member giving up everything, including them, and that's that's incredibly difficult for families. We saw that firsthand, obviously, and I've told the story. My mom passed away at the hospice some years ago, of course, mm-hmm. and uh, and had uh, incredible experience, end of life experience, and uh, it's not one to one, of course, obviously, but it's a much smaller environment. And uh, there's a relationship that's built up between the caregiver and, and the individual in that situation. And that's key here, isn't it? Absolutely. And it's key in the community as sure. well. Like, absolutely is key. And I think that that's why having organizations work together to sort of solve, you know, the issue of where it's where it's where opiates are failing families. Um, how can we get better monitoring out there? How can we make sure that physicians are, um, you know, educated enough around what they're, how much they're giving, you know, what is the potential exposure for that medication to be sitting in a family's home? I think, you know, and then working if uh, you start to see family members, you know, taking the medication that is meant for their loved one. So I think there's a lot that we can do as, as a city. And uh, as we were saying, how can we make Hamilton set up for the best community to use opiates or whatever pain symptom um, drugs are out there to help those who need it, but also to minimize the risk of folks who are in the community that might be susceptible. So I, th- I think this is a great conversation for us to have so that we can bring you know, all the sides, both folks who are dealing with the negative uh, effects of this drug, but also the folks who are dealing exactly. and seeing the positive of it. Uh, I want to build up uh, and, and we can come back after the break. I want to talk about that building that trust and in and, and, and that relationship to try to get people on the road to recovery if they are in a, in a, a situation like that. We were talking about building up trust, Debbie, just before the break there and, and developing that relationship. Somebody uh, who approaches you and, and, and has the courage to actually say we have to do something about this. Uh, th- there has to be some feeling right off the bat that they, that they can trust you, obviously, because I'm sure that they probably had a number of situations before they knocked on your door uh, where they thought they trusted people and people let them down or people. And, and I understand that so there's a certain paranoia sometimes and a number of things can come at play here. It's a, it's a real mixed bag that you're having to deal with there. And at the same time, you're trying to break through and develop that, that relationship. Yeah. And and again, people who are still thinking about whether or not I want to give up this substance are more vulnerable to whether or not I am going to take those steps in the first place and and connect with somebody who might be helping me. And sometimes that's what family and partners and brothers and sisters do is they help push people forward to at least give it a try. And then it allows services like MASH and like Womankind and like some of our other services in the city like Alcohol, Drugs and Gambling and Wayside and Suntrack to be able to build that relationship with someone. Relationships are what make the difference in life. If, if I have somebody who believes in me, who thinks that I can do this, who's not pulling me along, who's walking with me, who's there to, to talk about the things that did not go so well or what I tried, who is non-judgmental and it sometimes takes, we had one woman who came 180 times to womankind. And every time we tried to treat her like it was the first time, we certainly know her at that point in time. But to say to somebody, I'm really glad you're here. Uh, what, is it, what is it we're going to work on this time? And sometimes they get to the point where, you know what, I, I got to get out of here. And there's a variety of reasons why that happens. Sometimes it's withdrawal. Sometimes it's a debt. Sometimes it's somebody's birthday. Sometimes it's a wedding. Sometimes it's spending some time with somebody who you really feel you need to do. And other times it's because I have such incredible triggers and cravings that I just need to go and deal with that right now. But knowing that they can come back, that we're going to be here. We're 24-7. Both services are available 24 hours, seven days a week. And uh, you don't have to give us your name if today's not the day you want to do that. 
but we're uh, we're going to try to help you define goals and get to where you need to go. What, what would you advice would you give to family members who know that there's somebody or or a loved one, somebody that you care about, who's 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 uh, you in your mind dealing with an addiction and 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 a, a, a substance abuse problem in a situation like this? Uh, saying stop it, get off that's probably not the best tack to take in a situation like this, but. You want them to get better. You want them to seek help. How do, how do you do that without getting in their face to the point where they're going to turn away from you? Yeah. I think the most important thing that families can do, and, and that includes a broad family because we all have uh, you know people that sure. are not necessarily related by blood, is we need to first off take care of us because we cannot be of help to somebody else if we're not doing well. We cannot drive the bus. This is their bus to drive. This is their journey to walk. We can be an accompanier. We can walk beside people, we can walk behind people, but we can't be pulling them forward. Ah, I found a service for you. This is a telephone number. I've spoken to them. They're ready to see you right now. That's not going to work if, if I'm not ready to do that. However, having that information, when somebody says to you, I can't do this anymore, it's got to stop, I wonder if withdrawal management might be an option for you right now. I could find the number for you if that would be helpful. I'd be happy to drive you. I'll come and visit during visiting hours. I can be available on the phone. I can help you get packed. But you're not taken. You're not, you're not pushing them there. It's their choice. And that's what's really hard for family because sometimes enough is enough. And we need to know that you can say no to somebody. So, so sometimes parents need to say, I really would like for you to be here. Um, but my expectation is that you're not stealing from this home and that you're not taking drugs when you are physically here. If you need to do that when you're outside of here, know you can come here and crash, but you don't bring drugs into this home. So we need to figure out what our boundaries are, what we're willing and not willing to put up with, and we need to state them, and we need to follow through. As uh, you've all talked about here in the last couple of minutes, uh, dealing with an addiction is... uh, it's, it's not a craving. There are, there's a, a physical end to this, a real physical end to this. Uh, there's a, a psychological end to this as well. Uh, Claire, i got to think that when somebody seeks help for situations like this, and I'd like you all to comment on this if I could, uh, you don't walk in, do the program, and say you're clean for forevermore. I mean, there are times when maybe, as, as Debbie says, they may leave, they may think it's not working, et cetera, like that. How do you, how do you avoid them getting this feeling that, well, I've failed? Because that that can be crushing when you're in a situation, a very vulnerable situation at, at that given time. Well, I think as as Debbie had pointed out before, you know, the you know having a greater understanding of stages of change and and how to support someone through their their stages of change, um, as opposed to pulling them. That that that's certainly one of the things um, because then you'll know that it's their journey, right? Um, but it's hard. I think definitely, you know, the more support we can give to those people around because they feel really helpless. You know, like I think we sometimes, you know, we look at the person with the addiction as being helpless, but many of the folks who surround them feel incredibly helpless to actually stop what they see as a destruction for that person. And then when they see them clean up and they're like, wow, yay, we, we made it. And then when that person, you know, may may fall back into that for, for a bit of a time, you know, they also go through the emotions of mm-hmm. feeling let down, feeling hopeless. So again, I think that, you know, the issue of us all learning how to deal with grief and loss and, and, and emotions and, and all of those kind of things, um, may help, you know, both the family and and certainly the person in there. But shaming and blaming um, is never the answer to support someone. And I think that we live in a culture sometimes where we spend a lot of time shaming uh, folks. So, 
Yeah, in public health, um, uh, an approach that we support is around harm reduction. And harm reduction is really about meeting people where they're at. Um, and uh, during that time, you're building trusting relationships with them because that's really key. So with harm reduction, um, essentially, we don't require people to be abstinent from drugs, but we're going to support them um, to use drugs as safely as possible. Until, like a needle exchange exactly, program. Exactly, yeah. like needle exchange, like naloxone. Try to keep them safe until they might be ready to enter into treatment and to address some of the other issues they're having. And so, again, that's getting back to the idea of, you know, we can't force someone into a program that's unlikely to be effective. We need to um, be with them along the journey and when they are ready to support them into entering into something. One of the examples I use a lot with people is smoking because a lot of people will have had personal experience with smoking cigarettes or have a family member or friend who smokes cigarettes. Most people know that smoking cigarettes isn't good for them from a health perspective. But there are going to be times when people choose to smoke for other reasons and then they might get to a time and decide you know what I'm ready to quit the number of people that successfully quit smoking the first attempt is very small it often takes five six seven or more attempts in order to successfully quit smoking and the thing is as service providers we want to be there with them along the way so that every time they want to quit we are able to help support them and in the interim we try to work with them to decrease the risk not unlike the uh, lady you were talking about that came back yeah. so many different times. And part of new that, beginnings. Yeah, new beginnings. But part of that is is holding hope for people. Mm-hmm. So so we may be the bearer of the you know the flame that, that we we believe in you, uh, and and also recognizing and helping people to name what did I learn from this period of time. So I had some time without substances. This is what happened in my life. This is how I felt. I went back to them in a relapse kind of way. And and that's an expected thing. I mean, if we think about exercising, how many of us have started to exercise? And, you know, today we're not. <laughs> I, I don't have to answer that, do I? No, you don't. <laughs> Thank you. Okay. But it, it's not blaming. It's, it's understanding that that was something that I made a commitment to, that things changed in my life, and now I'm needing to shape or, or change my expectations and how I go about that. And, and it doesn't mean that those running shoes are going to, you know, gain dust it just means that today they're not, they're not going to be used. And tomorrow is another day. It's a new opportunity to look at this. And if I've got somebody who believes in me, and, and we often, often talk about allowing those accomplishments to come in and actually fill us, you know, allow it to warm us up like, it, like it's, a, like it's a, a, a burst of warm air. Because often we don't even acknowledge that we've done something well. We don't take the time to say, whoa, okay. There, there is a possibility here. And each time we acknowledge that we are capable of doing something, it makes it more possible to do it differently the next time. Doctor, you mentioned naloxone a second ago. Uh, I want to, I have a kit here in front of me. Uh, Liz Russell, our producer of the, the program here, we actually went through the training program and uh, talked about that uh, a few months ago. And uh, this is her kit. Uh, one of the uh, revelations that I heard yesterday on the program was uh, Dr. Praley from, uh, from St. Joe's. Uh, who reminded us that this is not a cure. Naloxone is not a cure for an overdose. It buys you time to go and get treatment. And uh, that's uh, we mentioned that a couple of times yesterday. I want to mention it a couple of times today, too, for people that are, are, are dealing with addictions right now, that this is not a magic bullet, is it? That's right, and I'm so glad you raised that issue. So for those out there who don't know, naloxone or Narcan is an antidote to opioid overdose. So it, it temporarily reverses the effects, but the opioids stick in your system, in your body, a lot longer than that. So essentially, this is buying you the time 
to have 911 called and for paramedics to get there in order to get you to the hospital for treatment and save your life. So, you know, we at Public Health, we talk about four C's of safety around safer drug use. The first is, you know, you want to make sure that you're using with someone else there and you're testing your drug before uh, you use the whole amount so that you understand um, what's in there and what effect it's going to have on your body. You want to carry naloxone as well so that you can use it for yourself or use it for someone else. Um, you also want to make sure that you're calling 911. And this is particularly important with the more potent opioids. I mm-hmm. think a lot of people will have heard about carfentanil, 10,000 times more potent than morphine. Carfentanil, you know, naloxone is, it may not reverse it. So it's just, again, trying to buy you enough time for EMS to get there and get you to the hospital. And, of course, if someone's experiencing an overdose, they've stopped breathing, their heart may stop, you want to start CPR on them. So push hard, push fast. Uh- can anybody give this? I mean, if if, if somebody is OD'd yeah. and, and I happen along and I see they have a kit, yeah, yeah. How do you how do you inject? Yeah. So um, there are two types of kits that are out there. Um, the first ones that were used were the injectable ones, and it's now transitioning. The kits that are being given out now are the nasal mm-hmm. ones, which are a little easier to use if you haven't been trained before. But essentially, if you open up the kit, there is an instruction um, sheet in there that tells you how to use it. There's um, little tiny vials called ampules inside that hold the medication, the, the naloxone. Mm-hmm. And there's a, um, a top that goes on to the vial that helps you to open it up so that you don't crush the glass in your fingers. You just draw it up into the syringe and then you're going to want to put it into a large muscle. So like near the upper part of the arm where people will be familiar if they've been getting vaccines from their doctor, you can also give it in the thigh and you just put the needle right through the clothing and that you don't have to undress the person. If you have the intranasal naloxone, all you do is you take the um, the uh, the little bottle out of the kit and you pull the lid off it and you put it up the person's nostril and you just give it a squeeze and that'll shoot the medication up their nostril. And in both kits, you'll find that there are two doses of naloxone because the thing is, uh, you know, as we said before, it's a temporary measure and you're just buying time till EMS gets there. Uh, you know, if the person is not coming around after about five minutes, you're going to want to give them the second dose. So you either okay. inject them in a different spot or you shoot the naloxone naloxone up the other nostril. Okay. Uh, and, and again, it bears repeating that this stuff will wear off. It, it will does. buy you some time. Yep. And, Always and, call 911. And, and, and then the narcotic is still in your system. So when this wears off, you're right back to score one? Exactly. So always call 911. They're going to get you to the hospital and make sure that they keep you alive. Uh, and, and it comes back to what we talked about, about managing the system and, and not telling somebody, hey, you've just got to go cold turkey and stop doing this thing altogether. That there are stages. And, uh, and there's there are times where you're going to fall back. And, and, and I guess the, you have to have that conversation with them going in, don't you, Debbie? Yeah, and we especially want to have that conversation with somebody who's stopped for a period of time. Because if they've stopped using opioids, they don't have the same resistance anymore. So if I were using, you know, X amount a week ago, I've not used for a week. If I take that same amount as I normally do, it's going to be an overdose for me. So thinking about using small amounts, testing what it is you've got. And even if you're buying from exactly the same dealer, his product may not be the same. He's, he's got to replenish that supply. So yeah, That's uh, the wild card here, isn't it? It is. I mean, we've talked about this from a, from a clinical standpoint, you know, getting this through doctors, through, uh, through institutions, et cetera, for dealing with chronic pain and, and pain management. But then, as you say, those, there are those who will turn to street drugs as a result and say, well, okay, I, I, I need more. You don't know what you're buying. No. 
And, and again, it's an entrepreneurial activity. I would like you to come and buy from me again. So therefore, I may add a variety of different things that make your high different this time. So um, it's really important that you're, as Jessica said, is you're using a small amount. Test it out. See what's going to happen. You still have the remainder, so you can still use the remainder if it's going to be all right. Have your naloxone kit uh, with you. Use with somebody, for goodness sakes, let somebody be there with you when you're using, because they may be the one who saves your life, or you may be the one who saves their life. And the hesitancy around 911, we, we just need to get over that. It's um, The police are there to get you to emergency. That's what they want to do. They, they may walk into a situation where there's all kinds of people and there's all kinds of drugs around. Their priority is getting that person to, to emergency. And Deputy Chief Kinsella made that point uh, yesterday, and, and, and that's that's an important part of this. I, I don't want to get caught. I don't want I, I don't want to get arrested. Uh, th- their priorities deal. They want to save the life. Yeah. And and whatever else happens, if there's paraphernalia around, et cetera, that's that's another issue for another day. But save the life, and 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 that's why the nine one one call has got to be such an important element to this as well. Uh, and and for those that are around them, uh, that, uh, to to make sure that that support service is going to be there. Uh, this is this is such a, a difficult subject to to breach, as I say, because there are so many different people that are are using opioids in so many different ways, like this. And and we we don't also don't want to draw a characterization that everybody who's going to be on these things is 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 addicted to them or has the propensity for this too. But there can be worst case scenarios in this. But it also, I think, Claire, to your point, from dealing with uh, things like palliative care, etc. Uh, there has to be monitoring if it's being used in a situation like that to make sure that you don't get too close to that precipice. Absolutely, and and just uh, um, you know how are the drugs uh, collected after someone passes? Like, how do you monitor? Like, I've given fifty pills, and now this person has uh, changed, or you gave him a fentanyl patch, and and now they're not using the patch. Where did it go? Right. So, how do we create better systems around the dispensing and monitoring? I think that's that's a piece, and I do think that there is uh, there's some education for family physicians on who are dispensing um, large amounts of of opiates to work with the clinical consultants in in palliative care um, who can help them understand the, the, you know, different uh, opiates and and how to really write the prescriptions around that, but then also to monitor it. So I think um, there's lots for us to do. I think there's also a piece for uh, just the average person out there who may have gotten, they might have had a dental surgery and been given some Tylenol number three or some Percocet afterwards, and they probably didn't need all of them. And and so one of the things I would encourage people to do is to take those medications to their pharmacy for safe disposal. Because one of the things we also don't want to see is, for example, children getting into those mm-hmm. medications. And obviously with, you know, little tiny body weights, they're going to have far stronger effects for a medication that doesn't have a big impact on an adult. So I think, you know, just safety with medication in the home is a really important piece of this as well. This mm-hmm. has been uh, extremely informative and, and helpful. I want to thank all three of you for being here today. Uh, Dr. Jessica Hopkins, uh, Chief Medical Officer for the uh, City of Hamilton, Claire Freeman, of course, from the Bob Kemp Hospice, and Debbie Bang, Manager of Womankind Addiction Services with uh, St. Joseph's Healthcare. Thank you one and all uh, for the great work that you're doing on a daily basis and for being here this afternoon. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Thank Bill. you. Thanks for having Thank us. You. We have to do a break. We'll come right back. The Bill Kelly Show, 900 CHML.